Audacious Compassion, Episode 7. I'm sorry this is happening. Welcome to Audacious Compassion, a podcast where we explore how to find compassion in the most difficult places in daily life. I'm Gregory Avery Weir. And I'm Melissa Avery Weir. And today we'll be talking about how to show compassion when you can't do anything about someone's problems. So how are you doing today, Alyssa? I'm doing all right. A little stressed by, I would say, the political situation in America Mm -hmm. at the moment. But um, this, this idea reminds me of a situation that a a partner of mine is currently in where they're having a situation where they have a a, just a difficult kind of family life at the moment juggling a couple of kids a job change all sorts of stuff going on and it's it's one of those situations where like I can't really do anything to fix this for them I can you know bring dinner and hang out and watch tv and listen but when it comes to actually doing something, there's just not much I could do. I could offer unwanted advice. <laughs> yeah, when you're dealing with, with partners, boyfriends, girlfriends, even spouses often, like you can't actually fix problems for people because that's that tends to be kind of unhealthy a lot of the time. Right, I mean, I guess I could interfere in some way. Right, right could... like call someone out, especially when... when polyamory is involved like (laughs) if you're interacting with people's other relationships often that can be misread or can have other things feeding into stuff right and yes you're you're, you might very well be acting without someone's consent right um so yeah it's a it's a sticky situation and i know that being there is a thing that I'm doing that is helpful. I know that that is technically true, but it is it is hard to to see someone hurting and not really be able to do much about it. Yeah, I've I've had a similar thing like that where I I almost f- have felt like I need to head things off of the past and being mm-hmm. like I'm not going to give advice here. I I can't help you with this. I can just listen, and the right. person's like, I just that's all I want. All I want is for you to listen. Like, don't why. <laughs> Why are you even leading with that? Like, I'll ask you for help if I if I want help. Right, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's tough. How have you been doing? Uh, I've been I've been pretty worn out. Uh, I was up uh, last night, pretty late, two thirty or three in the morning. Um, this is we're, we're recording this closer to the date than we'd prefer. Uh, this is, I think, literally the last night before publication that we can record this before when, when we both have time. And uh, this is the the Women's March on Washington happened on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then there's been all sorts of uh, Nazi punching and alternative facts and uh. and calling in and calling out. And I, I, was, I was up with thoughts racing in my head and I typed some of them down into a blog post that hopefully I'll be able to get in a state where I'm 
feel safe posting and and like it's good enough to you can, <laughs> be worth posting if it uh, if it turns out to to not be very readable you can just call it a faulkner-esque stream of consciousness and leave it at that oh no i don't i don't <laughs> if it's not good enough to post i don't think i'm gonna call it anything in public i not not in this climate but uh, yeah that's it's very tiring to see a whole lot of problems and to not be able to help much with any of them. Yeah. Like, theoretically, I could be more politically active than I am. You know, more than, you know, I'm giving some money, I'm trying to be a public, like, advocate. Right. Um, I'm trying to talk to my to my friends and family, but I could be doing more. But on the other hand, like, if I did... At what How much more exhausted would I be? Mm-hmm. What other things that I'm working on would suffer? Right. And there are lots of things that I think we as... Oof, if I label us activists, that's, that feels weird. Sure, we're, screw it, we're activists. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, doing a video, we're making a video game about social justice. This is true. Like, that, that counts, I think. As activists, we're, we, we put upon ourselves the idea that we're supposed to have a, opinions about everything. And which, yeah, the which, hot takes and all that. Some sort of takes. Some people can't define hot take clearly for me, so I, I don't use that term very much. But that adds to this exhaustion, right? Of like, you need to say something. And or... if you don't say something, you're part of the people who are remaining silent. Right. Which is legit, but also is puts a big burden on people. Right. And I don't have strong feelings about everything. <laughs> and ultimately about the Nazi punching, that's kind of what I posted, tweeted at least. Yeah, like that that idea that we need to have a face about everything, even though we can't fix everything. Right. It's a yeah. climate in which in which it is useful to listen to other people's opinions on things, and yet we still feel as if we're supposed to do something and say something about it. Mm-hmm. But boy, <laughs> I don't know that advocacy on everything like. There's so much stuff going on. Yep. I try and speak about and think about and help things, but I'm something is always going to fall by the wayside. Yep. And it's one of the things that, that struck me recently is I was going to call my senators about some of these... these... I still haven't found the strength to, to do so. The telephone stuff is one of the things that, that freaks me the hell out. Yep. And I, you know, I kind of had a sort of a script ready, but a piece of information I could not find is when were they actually going to vote? Hmm. So, you know, hearings happen in a committee, and then they might happen among the entire Senate, and then there's a vote called. But there was nothing like, no timelines listed. Yeah, and I think part of that is that there isn't one. There like, isn't Like, there's there's procedure to follow for that. Right, but it made it very difficult for me to, like, like how long do I have to get the gumption up to call? Yeah. <laughs> and like, in what order do I need to call? Like, you know, so that that adds to the frustration of I want to do something, but it yeah. feels difficult to do so. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've been I've been tired. <laughs> and I'm trying to take care of myself. I, I it feels like that's a common theme we talk about a lot is like making the good that you do sustainable. Yeah, and I think you and I are not doing great at that in different ways. Like, yeah. we're both churning in whatever individual ways we have. We'll find our balance. 
Yeah, I guess as long as we're fretting about it this much, we're probably not yet being too lazy. <laughs> well, we mean we don't want to become safety pin wearers. Uh, hey, <laughs> I have I have a safety pin on my jacket over there. No, I, no, no. I mean the, the stereotypical safety pin, oh, the thing that people oh, hate so much. Where you're where you're just wearing a safety pin, right. right? Yeah, I'm not I'm not convinced that those exist. I'm not either. But uh, yeah, always further on and higher up. Yep. The issue of not knowing how to help is is something that was sparked by a message we got from from a friend of the show. The prompt they sent in was, I've been thinking a lot about how to handle situations where someone is in trouble, in a bad situation, etc., but there's literally nothing I can do about it. There are only so many ways to say, that's really rough, I'm sorry this is happening to you. For example, a student fails a class delaying their graduation, a co-worker's marriage is ending, or someone is in financial trouble beyond what I can assist. What do you do about that? How do you show compassion? Right. In those situations. Yeah. We have sort we we had culturally have sort of catchphrases, right? Like that's rough oh, or that sucks, man. That sucks and then there's more that get increasingly ableist or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah, so we kind of have those those catchphrases and if you're dealing with this day in day out and this person mentioned students which suggests that might be the case that could just be like you might just need to like switch up your vocab right like how literally yeah. how many ways can you say that's really rough yeah that that i'm sorry this is happening to you is something that grates on me um uh, our minister for a long time reverend robin tanner did a mm. a talk a while back on apologies and what do apologies really mean <laughs> Yes. And that always, I always think of that pretty much every time I hear someone apologize for anything. And it's like, it's, you're not actually, like, you feel bad about it, but it's not an apology you're giving when you say you're sorry. It's just kind of like, I feel for you. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if that is a thing, I wonder if that is a colloquialism of the English language. Mm. Like that, ver, if that's a, ver, I've been learning some Russian lately, which is why this is coming to mind. Whether... We reflexively say I'm sorry and that that is an American or British yeah. thing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of romance languages are, those terms tend to be more like how sad or what a tragedy. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, which is which well, is yeah. a diff- very different in tone. Right. So, you know, there might be that element to this. But thinking about that in, in particular, like if, if, like you said, romance languages, what that's really rough, I'm sorry this is happening to you, doesn't have... Is connection to your own feelings, to to the to, to the, the speaker's feelings. Yeah, the listener, really. You're 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 saying that is difficult. I wish that wasn't happening. And those are both kind of estimations of of effort and of of uh, preference, but not of like what what's what's in your heart. I don't yeah. know. That sounds <laughs> that sounds kind of. <laughs> it's a little woo woo even for yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, I mean, those are logical things, like, and I, and I think they're nice things to do to acknowledge that this is, un, that you understand yeah. this is unpleasant. Like, that they're is also kind of non-committal. They're also like, really non-committal. Like, that, that is a difficult thing. Yes. <laughs> if I had the option, I would make it so that that thing was not as difficult. Like, that's like <laughs> one of those bare minimum things. But like, what, I mean, you don't, you can't give some, you can't pay someone's mortgage for them, probably. You can't fix someone's marriage or make it so that someone doesn't feel bad about it. Yeah. So what do you do? Uh, so this makes me think of when we were first learning nonviolent communication 
And our good friend set in front of us a list of feelings. Yeah. Remember that? Remember that? I don't know if you had this response, but I went, I know all of these words. Like these words are words in the English language, but I don't, I wasn't at the time thinking of my own emotions as that sort of complex cloud yeah, so, so nonviolent communication is also called compassionate communication, mm-hmm. and it's it's sort of a communication technique. It's a, yeah, it's a framework for conversations. Yeah, it's like, here, have this, follow this flowchart, and theoretically, if you, if you do this and look at the world in this way, then you interact with people better. And one of the early steps of that is to say how you're feeling. Right. Specifically, like not, I feel sad, but like, I feel exhausted exhausted or despair or despair is very different from wistful right and it's hard like to try and feel to recognize those emotions in a nuanced way in particular how they happen in your body and to to kind of recognize the differences between those is uh is hard it's something you have to learn and as a listener of someone who's telling you a story Mm -hmm particularly a bad thing, it can be hard to check in with yourself when you aren't part of the story. Right. It's like if you're having this discourse and you're talking about a situation between the two of you, like, I don't like when you do this, and you can be an active listener and be like, yeah, I hear you, you know, and you're in this story. But when it's your, this person is saying, I'm failing my classes, I'm not going to graduate, I'm not going to be able to get a job, etc., you aren't invested in that. Yeah, more often than not, it's even even with someone you're really close to, if they're telling you about something that's that's outside of your circle, it's kind of like, I'm sort of sad that's happening, but there's usually not a strong reaction. It might be like, I'm indignant right. that someone's doing this thing. Yeah, or there's some injustice occurring, perhaps. Or, or I'm, yeah. you know, longing to be able to help. Right. So in a certain sense, your emotions really aren't, Expressing your emotions isn't as important as just recognizing theirs. Like often when people tell something to you, what they kind of want to hear is you sound sad and that sadness is fine, is worth having. Yeah. And that thing about that sort of distance that we have, I mean, that's one of the things I've had to cultivate sort of with... With my own history with codependence. Is that willingness to recognize people's feelings? Yeah, and to not get embroiled. To not be angry for them. To say, you are feeling this, and I'm not. Right. And so, I'm sorry this is happening to you is like, might be one of the examples given when you kind of learn recovery techniques. Yeah. Because because that is distant (laughs) enough. That is distant enough. And yet it is making it clear that you're hearing that a bad thing is happening. So I, I totally get where that's healthy, especially if you're encountering this frequently, which I think a lot of us do. So yeah, I, I get that. And reflecting back more. Yeah. Sounds like you're angry about that. Sounds like you're really not sure how you feel. Sounds like this. Or does that make you feel sad? I mean, you don't want to sound like... Eliza, the chatbot. <laughs> or but... a therapist. But I I try, and knowing some of the people that listen to this podcast, I want to like ask them if I'm actually doing this well, <laughs> um, is I try to actually ask that an open-ended question. Like, is this situation okay? Like, yeah. if, if, if the person isn't making 
like if, if they could do five things to fix a situation and they are doing one of them i'm like is that cool is that is that moving things the way you want it to move how do you feel about that yeah because sometimes when someone tells you about a problem they're saying i'm having this problem that i'm dealing with right boy it's tough to deal with and sometimes it's i'm having this problem and i am lost right and neither one of those do you need to fix Right. But they sound different, and you it's yeah. good to recognize that those are different. So either asking, are you feeling sad about that? If you, if, you, if you feel confident, you can make that guess, which I feel less confident that I can make that guess. Um, or asking the open-ended version of, how are you feeling about that? We might tend to think of angry or sad, and what they're most feeling is overwhelmed. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's okay to make a wrong guess. Yeah, people usually, if you guess wrong, people will just say no, and it's kind of feeling this instead. But that's true. You know, you also can be wrong, and so you need to make sure to leave space for that. Mm-hmm. Like maybe say, "Oh, I would be feeling angry in that," instead of "You must be angry." Right. Just little things like that. So yeah, reflecting that is useful. But there's there's sort of another half to this which is we we're, we're we're kind of leaving on the table that there's nothing i can do that's true which i mean i'm gonna trust that like there's nothing you can do to fix the situation right. but this person is talking to you for a reason right and it might not be to get you to fix it it might be because they are getting value out of sharing it with you right and that can be anything from maybe your calm demeanor helps them find some perspective, even if things are really bad. Yeah, I mean, people, to a certain extent, search out folks that can't help them, that aren't entangled mm-hmm. with it, because it's nice to talk about a problem to someone who doesn't have a stake in it. Right. So, yeah, you're talking to someone who's going to stay calm, talking to someone who's going to get excited about it or be get mad about it. Sometimes, like, you, you want a ping-pong reaction of, yeah, this is bad, like, this is wrong, like, you want to... Some yeah. camaraderie there. Yeah, there's there's often like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of relationship stuff where like it's common for someone to have a problem in a relationship and find someone who is completely disconnected from that just to tell them like, boy, your partner seems like a jerk. Right. And maybe maybe the response is, oh, it's not, you know, that's more complicated than that and they're not actually that bad. <laughs> but there's catharsis there and yes. having someone say, that sounds awful. Exactly. And those are valuable. So... Yeah, the the person who is listening is probably playing a very important role. There have been times where I've gone to talk to someone and I did not feel at all like that experience went like I wanted it to. And that's sure, right? Like that happens. I mean, and sometimes it doesn't go like how you wanted it to and is also very valuable. Like sometimes you talk to someone and you're like, (laughs) I'm having this problem. And they're like, you're the one that's doing the wrong thing here. Like, don't be a jerk. (laughs) Look at... I'm looking at this from the outside, and it sounds like the problem is you. <laughs> that's a hard one to deliver. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's... <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to deliver when, when... Yes, but yes, it's tricky. So yeah, as the listener, you have a crucial role in that relationship between you and the person who's having the trouble. So, people are coming to you, offering you a problem... You're reflecting their feelings and serving that important role of just being the outside person. What if they are looking for help and you don't feel like you can give it? Like, there's that's the other side of it. Like, if they're not looking for help, that's, you know, you're 
we're good. Right. But what if they're like, my marriage is ending. Can you talk to them for me? You know them too. Oh. Or, or <laughs> oh, I'm failing a class. Isn't there something I can do? You can do. Or can you talk to Professor So and So? Right. Oh. Or I'm in, having money trouble. Help. Mm-hmm. Like saying no to that sort of thing in a compassionate way is hard because to a certain extent you have to not be sympathetic you have to not make their problems your problems right Um, if it's true that that you can't help yeah or if you don't want to right which is perfectly valid like i don't want to is always a perfectly good reason to not do something right yeah and I know we kind of talked about this, I think in the context of maybe students wanting help repeatedly for things that mm-hmm. that the professor couldn't really do much about. And this this is one of those instances where the two people are on different pages. Yeah. One person wants assistance, the other person either perhaps does not realize that or just can't. <laughs> right. And that's that's tough. Like that's you have to talk about what you can and can't do. I think that it's helpful or can be helpful to just state clearly pretty early that in, in the conversation, like someone comes to you and they say, oh, I'm having tons of money problems with the implication that they are close enough to you that they might ask for assistance. Mm-hmm. Saying something like, well, I'm willing to listen. Yeah. <laughs> like set that expectation. And... Don't lead with the reason why you can't help. Right. Because if you are not willing to help, it's not a negotiation. Right. Saying, like, I'm totally here to listen. Let me know if you would like advice. Yeah. You're saying clearly, like, I'm not going to dip in your business, but I'm I'm going to listen and, and reflect back, and we can talk about your feelings, and even explore the situation, like... You can ask, what steps are you taking? And that's not offering advice, depending on how it's worded and and kind of who you're talking to. Like, you can ask specific kind of interesting probing questions if they're up for that to to just kind of find out their situation. And that doesn't fall into doing something to fix it. Yeah. I guess also, you're not obligated to do any of that. Oh, yeah, that's true. When they show up and say, I have this problem... It's perfectly fine to say, that's a shame. So how about the <laughs> dinner on Thursday? Like, Stand you up. don't have to listen. You don't have to right. reflect. You don't, like, if you want to and feel able to, cool. Right. But Not you're... Not today, sucker. And close right. the door. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, don't, don't be a jerk. <laughs> but, like, it's not being a jerk to set boundaries on how you interact with the person. Right. Either per, per person or your quota for the day or whatever sort of differentiating factor is there. Yeah, that's that's very true. I've been trying to think, and again, this whole political situation, as, as always, sort of makes one consider one's priorities. Like, what makes the world a better place from the bottom up? Right, because these yeah. are the kinds of things that plague individuals yeah how do you improve that person's life yeah and i think more importantly what kind of behavior should you be modeling that improves the culture yeah you can you can improve your social circle right by acting how you want people to act in general right 
And I've been thinking about that in terms of listening to people, when to say no, I can't listen to you right now, when to, to shut off the feed of this, and when is it okay to not care? Yeah. I, f- I feel like this is something I, I mention periodically, but if you were willing to say, no, I don't want to do this right now, no, I can't, I'm not going to listen to you right now, mm-hmm. then pe- that means that people can trust you when you say, yes, I am interested. Yes. Because there's there's often this thing where we we say, oh I'm having this problem. I'm so sorry to burden you. I hope that I'm not. I, I mean you can you can leave if you want to. And like if someone has seen you say, this is too much. Let's change the topic. They're going to be much more comfortable coming to you in the future because they won't have to worry about that. Maybe unless they have a deep like unless they take that rejection very deeply, in which case they sure then but don't that's come back. Kind of not your problem, like. If you're being genuine and authentic with someone and they resent that, that's a shame and it's sad that there's that missed opportunity for you to connect. But like, yeah, if you feel like you did wrong, you can apologize <laughs> genuinely like about something you genuinely did wrong. But right. if you're still comfortable with that, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are ways to check in that don't negate that no. Right. Yep. I mean, and, and if you sense that happening, you can always be like, hey. I I might be willing to listen. Yeah, are we good? (laughs) But yeah, so someone comes to you. If you're willing, reflect and be there for them to share. Yeah, and reflect on feelings, not just observations. Yeah, not just that's rough or that's wrong. Right. But also... Feelings and needs, I think. Yeah. Um, So... Sounds like you're angry. Sounds like you're not getting X. Right. Sounds like you need more stability. You want more stability, right? Mm-hmm. Like kind of getting specific and finding out and, and listening to what they're, what's under the hood of a situation that's happening. So reflecting that back, setting boundaries for yourself mm-hmm. and what you can handle at any given moment. A common refrain. A, com- a very common refrain. And recognizing that you are doing something by listening. Yes, Exactly. You are helping. They are coming to you because they want to talk to you about it. Yep. So, yeah. I guess what we're saying is not being able to help sounds difficult. (laughs) That's cold. (laughs) I'm sorry this is happening to you. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, no, genuinely, like, that's... There's often a sense of hopelessness and sadness sorrow yeah they feel like extra little burdens little threads of thought yeah that can take up space and there are i mean there are ways people let go of those like that's back when i was a christian and you had your end of day prayer what you you, i recognize now that part of what we were doing was letting go Mm. Of those things that we had collected over the course of a day. Kind of putting putting those burdens on an entity with the power to care about them. Exactly. And that can be journaling, meditation, prayer, whatever. Exercise mm. has ways of being meditative that way. Working out your stress, right? Mm-hmm. And these are the kinds of things that can weigh on you. So, yeah, it's tough. So what have you been inspired by lately? I've been reading Douglas Hofstadter's I Am a Strange Loop. Uh, Hofstadter was, is, a, is a writer, um, did a lot of writing for Scientific American, had a regular column. Uh, I, I know him through his uh, book, Goodle Escher Bach and Eternal Golden Braid. That's what I thought. Which is this, 
one of my favorite books. I talk about it a lot. Um, a lot. <laughs> but it's it's a book that explores sort of recursion and, and weird loops and, and things containing other things and, and some of the oddness of math and music and art and how it relates to the human mind. And that was 30, 40 years ago now. And A Strange Loop is a relatively recent book. So the book is, is exploring the nature of identity and consciousness and is doing that in the context of sort of a, a math and neurology geek's perspective on how the mind works and how that compares to computers and, and so on. And, and he kind of starts the first roughly half of the book is setting up this idea of the, the mind and consciousness and identity as a system that can examine itself and an emergent system. Okay. So it's, there's, you know, a bunch of neurons firing and they construct this system by which there's a feedback loop of a person considering themselves and being able to be aware of themselves. But about halfway through, it does a really interesting pivot and talks about how your mind's capacity to examine and model itself also means that you are modeling other people Mm-hmm. and extends the concept of identity to include other people's identity as exists in our minds. The, the catalyst for this is, is Hofstadter's wife's death mm, okay. and how he's thinking about how in a real and literal sense, she her identity continues on within him because he has such a good model of her mind mm-hmm. that he is, to a certain extent, able to experience things for her. Right. That makes sense. And, and how other people's identity extends into ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so this, this sort of situation where, where there's nothing you can do about a problem and someone is sharing with you, you are in your theory of mind, in your holding a model of them, mm-hmm. you are contributing to their feedback loop of identity. Ah, oh, I like see. You're, you're very closely linked with their consciousness yeah and it's it's interesting i haven't finished the book yet uh it's kind of been i've been worried for a while that it's going to cross a line out of here's an interesting way of thinking about the philosophy of the mind and neurology into something a little more mystical yeah which i can be okay with a certain amount of mysticism but hofstadter is not how who i look for yeah for mysticism he is not that sort of thinker yeah but so far it continues to get more intricate and interesting Hmm. his uh, metaphor he's just brought up in the place that i am is of a person as a country with embassies okay so there is this this native land of the country the that is the brain of the person and they can still exist in part in other people it's it's Ah, it's it's a really interesting thought experiment and way of looking at identity. Do you think it helps to read Gertel Escher Bach first? He definitely reviews the required stuff at a okay. time. So you know, he, he goes through the whole the whole Gödel's incompleteness theorem and all that. All that you need to know is in this book. Okay. He refers to the old book, but you don't need to read it. So, what have you been inspired by lately? I recently listened to Trevor Noah's audiobook of Born a Crime, which is ah. his autobiography of sorts. Uh, well, his. Yeah, it sounds 
really interesting. It's really, really good. It, and I, I kind of assume correctness. Like, if someone is telling stories about their culture, I'm going to assume they're telling the truth. Yeah, so he's, he's a black, black South, South African. African. Yep. But is complicated because his father was white? Well, sorry, no, he's not black. Because his father's white, and that mattered. Yeah, and so it meant that, like, he couldn't walk in the park with his mother because he was literally an illegal child, and they would arrest her and put him in a, an orphanage. So he apparently spent much of his childhood indoors. Um, and so, but the way he tells this book... And I hadn't watched a ton of The Daily Show before that. I'd seen mm-hmm. some stand-up. But uh, the way he tells this story is so well-crafted because as he's telling these anecdotes, he just very naturally kind of has these sections. I don't know how it's written in, in paper form, but he just immediately kind of puts all this context right in front of you of this is what the hood means in South Africa. Like, what mm. is what we would call the hood here in America? That's This is what it looks like. This is what it's like to walk through this neighborhood. But it's all part of the story. It doesn't feel like you're switching between a Wikipedia article and mm, yeah. this this kid who's 17. It's not like some footnotes. Right. And then it being read by him puts it immediately in his voice and, mm-hmm. and makes it a very interesting story. And it is a story full of things that are so distant from our experiences. Um, and I think I think Trevor Noah has gotten flack because you look at him, and particularly in his role on The Daily Show, and you go, this is a black man that does not understand the American black man experience. Um, yeah. Which is interesting and, because he's, he, you know, he's rubbing elbows with political figures. Um, right, and to, to a certain extent, of course not because he's not a black American. And right. on the other extent, no, but he's had a different experience that in many ways is worse. Like, yeah. But like to to like the Daily Show is a I think as part of its identity has been that it is an American television show about American politics and American news. And so if the host if the if the host is someone who has not lived an American experience, are they representing their audience? Um, that I think that's an issue some people have, or that I've I've seen some people express. Yeah. But yes, the story that is full of. Generally post-apartheid, you know, he's, he's youngish, but not, but certainly saw the, the shift, some of the major cultural shifts, I think. It's a, it's this whole other world of problems that you can, you can connect with, like you can, you can imagine what it would feel like. And he does an okay, I mean, he does a very good job of humorously and otherwise expressing his feelings on the matter. But there's nothing you can do about that. Like, there's... It's real. It's not a story. It's real. But yeah. it's, it's divorced from reality. Your own reality, certainly. And I mean, there are things you could do to affect current South African politics. Are there? I mean, theory, you know, you could... I mean, you could go there. You could donate. Like, there, there, there are things you could do. You could amplify voices and things like that. But you can't do anything to affect the past. Right. Like that's that's one of the the difficult things about institutional oppression is that so much of it is historical. Right. Like it's 
you are in this situation because a hundred years ago, this thing happened to your grandparents or great-grandparents. Right. Yep. And I mean, this this is also the same sort of disconnect there is in general with world crises, I think, right? Like, yeah. There's a global warming is is making islands submerge. What can I... That's rough. <laughs> I'm sorry this is happening to you, right? Yeah, but personally, you can... You can do things to make the situation in 25 years better. Right. But probably that island's going to go underwater right. at this point. Like, there's right. little we can do about that specific issue. Right. We can provide help with refugee efforts or whatever. We can't fix the underlying problem, which is that their homes are gone. Right. There's There's too much going on, too much going wrong, too little news going on about it at Mm -hmm. least in our in my news circles to to be able to do anything about it and some days it's overwhelming and it's not even on days where there's like an a major crisis but sometimes i'll see a headline about syria and then i'm like oh yeah i haven't caught up on syrian news in the last couple weeks and then i'm like oh (laughs) yeah can my day be over now (laughs) if i have several friends in crisis at any given moment. And they are all coming to me to listen. They are not the same thing. They're not dying, right? Like, I understand that these are different scales of problems. But from an input exhaustion standpoint, they can feel similar. My, my physical reaction of exhaustion and, and feeling overwhelmed can be the same. Ugh. Sorry. Trevor Noah's book is great. Like, <laughs> uh, it was, I felt like I learned a ton about South African culture, his slice of South African culture, to to be fair and narrow that down, and his 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 mannerisms and style of talking and storytelling just had me rolling the whole time. And I enjoy his accent, so I now also watch The Daily Show quite a bit more. Cool. Uh, so I was tired at the start of this podcast. So what else? What else is there to 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 say about this this situation of not being able to help someone? How to be compassionate in that situation. Bearing witness is useful. Yeah, bearing witness is useful. If you have the energy, digging digging deep and taking that time, like being present in that moment. Actually recognizing their feelings, actually, actually paying attention. Right, like listen to their voice. Do they look like they've been crying? Like being observant and being there. Those are valuable things. They're hard to do. I've never had to do them on mass. It was really part of a job. Like yeah, you can only do a certain amount of that. That's yeah, a, that's a tiring thing. And I, I suspect it's something that gets easier with practice. I mean, there are people who do like therapists do this. Like this probably one. yeah, but I kind of feel like therapists don't. I don't know. Do therapists spend an entire day doing therapy? I've gotten the impression that like so I've had a therapist that I think took maybe 15 minute breaks or maybe 10 minute breaks between so the sessions were 50 minutes and that 10 minutes was spent getting notes down you know kind of finishing whatever little bit of charting and then decompressing I assume like going to the restroom and then next person and presumably a lunch break that that sounds like something where some people are cut out for that yep. and maybe most people aren't right and that's okay I think it's okay I think I would feel so if I had if I had to, if I had this often if I interacted with lots of people who needed my help 
And I've, I guess I've been in situations where lots of people wanted to talk about stressful things, particularly in this political climate, where over the course of a day, if I talk to five colleagues, four of them are going to want to expound emotionally about politics. Mm-hmm. If I have a good connecting moment with two or three of those five people, I'll feel okay. I think I'll feel like I did a, yeah. a good thing that day. And if I don't have the energy or don't click that day with a certain person, that's fine. And I guess that's a thing of, uh, it can be helpful to come away from that sort of conversation saying, hey, I listened to that person, yeah. rather than, oh, I couldn't help that person. Right. I connected with that person. We had a rapport. And some people, you just it's just really hard to connect with. And, you know, it's not it's not on you. Right. That's also fine. Like, it's, it's a mutual... You haven't let them down. Like Yeah. Yeah, there, there are two people in that conversation having that moment. And you both need to have intent yeah. to connect. But that connection's valuable. Yep. If it, went, if it happens, that in and of itself is valuable. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me today, Melissa. And thank you for talking to me. And thank you all for listening. This has been Audacious Compassion. If you have a question or a prompt for discussion... Please submit it to us at averyweir.net. That's A-V-E-R-Y-W-E-I-R.net. You can also find the show on Twitter at AudaciousCast. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. I'm Gregory Avery Weir, and I can be found at Gregory Weir on Twitter. And I'm Melissa Avery Weir, and I can be found at AveryMD on Twitter. Our opening and closing song is Invisible Light by Josh Woodward, available under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.